Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Hello and welcome to the Quillette podcast. My name's Toby Young and I'm an associate editor. I recently spoke with Matthew Goodwin, a professor of politics at the University of Kent and the co-author with Roger Eatwell of National Populism, the Revolt Against Liberal Democracy. We talked about Brexit, the rise of national populism in Europe and America, whether it's peaked and what its impact is likely to be on the future of social democracy, amongst other things. So we're speaking uh, the morning after Theresa May secured what looks like quite a significant victory in the House of Commons, uh, signalling that she can get a Brexit deal through Parliament if the EU is prepared to reopen the negotiation of the withdrawal agreement and change the backstop. But Donald Tusk, the president of the European Council, has already ruled that out. I mean, do you think that will remain the EU's position or do you think they'll blink? I think in the immediate short term, the EU is going to adopt a tough line and say, actually, we're not going to reopen the withdrawal agreement, we're not going to negotiate. But but I think inevitably, as the days and the weeks now tick towards that March the 29th deadline, I think inevitably there's going to be some negotiation and concession uh, and wiggle room around that backstop issue. Um, I've, I personally, I've always thought it's just simply not in that the political appetite is simply not there for a no deal. And given where we are in the cycle, given the, you know, what else is happening in the EU, the Eurozone numbers, the situation with Macron and now Germany's economy and so on, I just don't personally think the political appetite is there, no matter what is said about, uh, you know, re- re- retaining a tough line. Um, I don't think the appetite is there to, to, to uh, allow anything other than a renegotiation of that particular issue. How, what, what effect do you think the EU's position on this, I mean, if they remain completely intransigent, what impact will that have on the forthcoming elections to the European Parliament? Is there a danger that it will help Eurosceptic parties who might have some sympathy for Brexit um, because it will show just how inflexible, how unresponsive the EU is to democratic votes in its member states? I can't prove it, but looking at the research that we have in terms of the domestic effect in the UK, I'm pretty sure that the negotiations are one factor that's fed into this, uh, the the durability of support for leaving the EU. We've seen almost no real major fluctuation in uh, support for leaving the EU and thinking it was the right or wrong decision. Leavers are just as committed today, I would argue, as, as they were two and a half years ago. But on the EU side... Yeah, I think we've seen um, words come out um, from Italy, uh, from France uh, and from Germany on the more populist wing of the spectrum where, um, you know, and also Hungary, where people have said, you know, this, this is showing the EU not to be a particularly flexible actor. But I think irrespective of what happens with Brexit, um, the European Parliament elections in May are, are going to be incredibly difficult for what you might call the liberal wing of the European uh, Union. You know, we are going to see, even based on the latest projections, which are quite conservative, the share of seats in the European Parliament going to an assortment of Eurosceptic, 
uh, populist parties increase from around the 23% mark to the 33 to 37% mark. So they won't be a majority, but they will be a larger and more disruptive force. And that's not just, you know, not really to do with Brexit, it's more to do with the way in which uh, migration and the continuing effects of the refugee uh, crisis are blowing through political systems, it's to do with the economic disparities, and it's to do with this value divide that we're seeing playing itself out, where it's got to the extent that I would argue at least you know, Macron is now very much the outlier within Europe. The Europe's, Europe's political systems are moving quite quickly to the right. And yes, Twitter gets very excited about the German Greens, but the German Greens are not generally having anywhere near as much policy impact as national populists are having. But I mean, put it this way, if you'd said to me five years ago that the German and the Italian and the Swedish and now the Spanish party systems would look like they do, I, I wouldn't have believed you. Uh, we've seen a small regionalist uh, North and Northern Party in Italy take over Italian politics. We've seen the German party system, which I was always told when I was doing my PhD was immune to populism because of the legacy of the Second World War. We've seen that party system now uh, have uh, you know an openly populist right party enter every one of Germany's 16 state parliaments, win more than 90 seats in the Bundestag. We've seen populists in Sweden, historically liberal and tolerant Sweden, break through. And we've seen now the Spanish party system beginning to experience similar changes. And Le Pen, I would argue, remains just as strong as she was in 2017. So all of those things, I think, add up to what's likely to be the most successful set of European Parliament elections for populists that we've had since these elections began. We'll come on to whether populism is rising or whether it's peaked in Europe in a second. Um, but I just wanted to ask you about the Gilets jaunes. Uh, to what extent do you think those protests in France have been prompted by Macron kind of presenting himself as the saviour of the EU federalist project? I think that's undoubtedly part of the protests. I think Macron has advocated a reform policy agenda that was always going to sit very uneasily with a tradition in French politics that's been far more protectionist and far more... Uh, reluctant to liberalise economic markets and to push toward uh, much stronger federal uh, integration uh, at the EU level. Macron is a greatly diminished figure, not only internally but also externally. His approvals are now 27%. To put that in perspective, Trump's at 43 and Salvini's at over 60. So Macron is now the most unpopular political figure in in our advanced Western democracies, um, but also externally. You know, he's not got the concessions that he wanted from Germany on the Eurozone reform uh, agenda. He's not really been able to establish himself as a, as a leader of Europe. If anything, it seems momentum's going the other way towards the kind of looser, conservative, nationalist, populist axis. And I think partly this reflects the weaknesses that are inherent within, you know, the kind of centrist liberal project that Macron tried to bring. He, he never won a captivating, compelling mandate in the 2017 presidential elections. You know, he, 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 he you know, won, uh, he got through round one, but then, then ended up being president after defeating, uh, you know, still a highly toxic Marine Le Pen. So the public enthusiasm for his agenda was always exaggerated. And it was exaggerated in my mind by um, you know, a lot of sort of, you know, liberal commentators who desperately wanted to see a revival of a kind of third way type project. 
losing sight of the fact that the public mood has fundamentally changed and drifted away from that. Um, you know, anybody who looks at contemporary public opinion in Europe and says actually what people really want is a continuation of social liberalism, economic liberalism and greater European integration just is, is just completely disconnected from the evidence. What you're seeing, I think, is that most voters, the average voter at least, is looking for two things. One is a bit of a greater sense of economic security amid the winds of globalization, and the other is a greater sense of cultural security amid the ongoing effects of migration and rapid demographic change. Do you think that the um, Gilets Jaunes movement um, is going to come to anything. We've seen some yellow vested protesters appear in England um, protesting about Parliament's attempts to overturn Brexit. It looks a lot like the Occupy movement, the Tea Party movement. It doesn't seem to be organised in a strategic way. There don't appear to be leaders, there's no clear programme and as we saw with those two movements they have a tendency to kind of spring up largely via social media campaigns and then fizzle out. Do you think that's what's going to happen with this movement or do you think it actually might turn into something else? Well, I noticed that organisers have now announced they've got a slate of candidates for the European Parliament elections in, in the spring. That could be problematic for Macron, but it could also be problematic for the established um, challenger parties in the French system. That If you look at the data on who is supporting the yellow vest. Now, looking at the polls yesterday, 58% of all French people say they have sympathy for the movement. Um, now, that's come down from about 20% in December, but still a, a majority. But then if you drill down further and look at who is most likely to support the yellow vest, it's really uh, drawing in support from the populist right wing of the spectrum as well as parts of the populist left wing of the spectrum. So that, that could present a strategic problem for the Le Pen-Melenchon movements if indeed this continues to remain a durable political force. Now it may be that actually what we see in the elections is a reversion to something of the norm where the Yellow Vest perhaps fail to, to take off electorally and you see people when confronted with these elections which let's not forget always encourage voters to you know, uh, protest against the uh, establishment, revert perhaps to the new Le Pen movement and, and the populist left parties that they have. So I think the jury's out. What is clear is that you know, Macron himself is going to have a very difficult time in terms of regaining momentum. You know, We've had stories this week celebrating the return of his approval ratings to 27%, as if you know the guy's back in control. I mean, it's still dire compared to other uh, leaders. In national populism, um, you and Roger Eatwell uh, challenged the idea that the people attracted to populist parties um, and populist causes are old, white, uneducated, red-faced men on low incomes, gammons, as they've been dubbed here. Um, who, who is actually attracted to these movements? Who votes for national populist parties? So I think many people on the left have basically smothered themselves with comfort blankets when it comes to trying to explain this political change. And one of the main blankets has been this idea that this is all about angry old white men. This has a long lineage. You know, um, in the US prior to Donald Trump's election, you saw, you saw Democrat pollsters like Stan Greenberg arguing that there was no, no way that Republicans could ever retake the White House because of the way in which ethnic and cultural diversity was introducing younger 
liberal, uh, more diverse populations that would basically reduce space, not only for populist politics, but for conservative politics too. And, you know, in earlier decades, we had similar arguments about the inevitable dominance of the Labour Party in British politics because of the way society was changing. And now, more recently, with the Brexit debate, we've had pollsters who really should know better making the argument that actually all the awkward old white people are dying out and therefore Britain will inevitably vote to remain because, you know, of demographic change. So this, I would argue, this is this kind of the sort of demographic inevitability argument that's often been uh, latched onto um, among many on on the left, and you know why do they like it? They like it because you don't need to engage with the actual grievances that are driving this stuff. If it just becomes a kind of conveyor belt, if history and politics is just reduced to generational change, uh, you know it, it also ignores a whole host of evidence, a whole array of evidence that we have on life cycle effects and differential turnout. But it's convenient because it fits into this progressive idea that the future is inevitably a liberal progressive future. But isn't there some polling evidence to suggest that Generation Y, Generation Z are to the left of previous generations and actually to the left of where those previous generations were when they were their age? Certainly the attitude within British and American universities towards right of centre speakers on campus suggests that there is a kind of resurgence of kind of regressive leftism. So I think so I think there's I think there's certainly evidence to suggest the broad the broad currents uh, are there, but the interpretation of those currents I think is often very misleading. People massively exaggerate the pace of generational change. Um, they also exaggerate the way in which um, period or cohort effects can get in the way of that. So if you look at Europe right now, one of the most interesting things about the populist movements in Europe for me is that most of the people generally who are supporting them are not the sort of greying pensioners who have memories of you know the immediate post-war era, but the under 50s or the under 40s. Or if you look at, say, Le Pen in France, actually, it's often younger people. Um, you look at the AFD in Germany, if you look at Salvini in Italy, he's drawing votes fairly evenly from across the different generations. So I don't see you know, this, this argument playing out in, in real terms. And also I, I would argue that we're dealing with generations of voters too now who are being socialised amid a very different political, social and economic climate that you know, the experience of this particular period in history where voters are navigating, um, you know, all multiple uh, shocks, social shocks, economic shocks, security shocks. You know, I think the jury's out. Will that have a profound impact in leaning them more toward a conservative brand of politics, um, or will it keep them on this kind of, you know, the, the popular argument among liberal progressives? Will it keep them on this, this sort of? inevitable train towards a kind of you know liberal future 100 200 years from now and the confidence at which that argument is presented i find very troubling because it was also made by the way in the, in the 1990s now if you bought the argument then think about all of the political change and the ruptures and the shocks that that you just would have been taken aback by you know you the 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 rise of national populism in europe um uh, the Bush presidency, uh, Trump, uh, Brexit, the, you know, prior to that, the rise of the UK Independence Party, all of these shocks remind us that actually generational change, cultural change is much slower 
than some of its advocates would have you believe. So another comfort blanket that um, liberals clutch to um, to try and explain the success of Trump and Brexit and other populist causes and parties is that it's all uh, masterminded by Putin with these legions of troll farms and these kind of disinformation um, experts. Um, Putin and these sinister uh, companies that have harvested data from social media sites like Facebook. Uh, what's wrong with that analysis? Well, both the uh, US and UK shocks of 2016 were quickly attributed to to that uh, explanation. It's deeply problematic. If you look at all of the research that we have on Trump's election, for example, it shows quite clearly that long-term trends that were fundamental to his victory were set in place you know, long before the campaign even began, before he'd even announced his candidacy. If you look at the work of John Sides, for example, in the US, who has shown the weakening attachments between uh, you know, key sections of the US electorate and the Democrats that effectively paved the way for Trumpism before Trump had even emerged. Similarly, if you look at the UK, you know, the National Centre for Social Research and some of our research has also shown that basically between uh, 1996 and 2015, before the Brexit referendum even began, uh, often clear and large majorities of Brits were saying they either wanted to leave the EU altogether or they wanted to dramatically reform the EU and the amount of power that it has before we had Facebook, before we had Twitter, before we had social media. Now, I think the Wizard of Oz argument that is now presented that you know Putin's kind of behind a curtain controlling national elections, is in, it, it, there are legitimate issues about electoral integrity, and I'm not going to say there aren't, but, but, but the idea that this is a kind of major causal factor, I personally think, is, is problematic. Social media is a low-trust environment. That's one thing I want to see debated and discussed. Only th about 30-35% of people trust what they see and read on social media. I think the second issue is the empirical evidence. I've read almost every study that's come out, in particular of the Brexit referendum, and that really is not at all providing any credible evidence for some of the claims that we've had in mainstream media about the, uh, the, the impact of internet trolls and Twitter bots. If you read some of the work that's come out of Edinburgh, um, I think it's Cardiff and uh, with colleagues, I think in, in California, you know, they make the point that most of the Twitter bots, by the way, that were active during the referendum were often active after voting um, had taken place and often advocated that people vote remain or they were talking about completely other issues. So even if you just zoom in on that one particular point, I don't really think the evidence is there. But what does this really tell us? What does it reflect? It reflects a broader inability on the part of some liberal progressives to actually understand and grasp and reflect on why people are rejecting the current settlement. And, th and that is what this argument is partially about, which is just explain it away, uh, get it out of here, attribute it to some kind of malign force, whether that's Putin, whether it's bigotry, whether it's racism. And, and unfortunately, as we are now discovering, the more that people cling to those arguments, it's actually having the opposite effect of what they really want to see, which is it's galvanizing support uh, for populists. We now have studies showing this, that you know, political correctness, clamping down on, uh, on you know, ch trying to change communication norms, actually was driving support for, for Donald Trump. 
Um, in the same way that this demography equals a liberal destiny, well, if you're reminding people constantly that their societies are being radically transformed and that they are, in effect, becoming the new left-behind group, right? Or if you're going to advocate identity politics in such an open, aggressive way, don't be surprised then when other groups uh, start mobilizing around around their group identities too and wanting to get into the political arena to have a battle over these uh, these these uh, over the future of our societies um, so I think actually my issue here is I think there's a lot of folks on the left actually making this situation a lot worse so let's get to the deep long-term underlying causes you your um fairly dismissive of these um, various explanations. It's not to do with Cambridge Analytica, it's not the last gasp of angry old men. Uh, the rise of populism is not a response to short-term crises such as the financial crisis of 2008 and its repercussions. In national populism, you and Roger Eat will ascribe it to the four Ds, so distrust of political elites, the destruction of the national group's historic identity and established way of life, a sense of deprivation caused by rising inequality and the feeling by some groups that they're losing out to others, and the de-alignment of voters from mainstream political parties. Do you want to talk a little bit more about those long-term tectonic shifts? Yeah, so the argument essentially is we've got to get away from this obsession with short-term factors and understand how the deep, longer-term currents are reshaping our politics. And the four Ds was just a kind of fairly simplistic device, but trying to draw people into a lot of the evidence and research that we have in social science about how our political systems are changing. Now, um, we've set up a, a somewhat of an unfortunate, misleading debate about is it culture, is it economics? And that debate basically runs through much of the public discussion I think it's fair to say Roger and I accept that both of those arguments are having an impact on political behaviour, but you know we do lean more toward cultural change uh, than economic. Um, now, in terms of these long-term currents, the first key point for me is our political systems are becoming increasingly representative of groups like women and minorities, but they are actually becoming increasingly less representative of the groups that are now voting for populists. So, um, uh, working class voters, non-graduates. That's a problem. Many of those voters have a good reason, as many of them say in surveys, that they have no voice in politics and nobody's really listening to them. Um, and we know from work in the US and, and Europe, books like Diploma Democracy, White Collar Government, that there is an exclusion bias being built into our political systems that is giving people a good reason to feel as though actually they're being screwed over by policy uh, communities. Um, that's part of it. But the second part, which I think is important, really relates to the experience of this rapid demographic change that we're witnessing. And the fact that that is not, as many on the left would argue, just about economic scarcity and competition over resources. It's far more about the cultural effects that that is seen to have on ways of life, identity, belonging, and community. Um, you know, And we're having this debate, and I think you know, Eric Kaufman and um, has, has also got a good book on this and uh, others in, in the US are now beginning to reach the same conclusion which is that at, at root uh, these populist movements are being driven by voters that are profoundly unhappy uh, and dissatisfied with the pace and the scale of demographic change within their societies and that is not simply to do with racism and xenophobia that there are legitimate concerns 
um, about how that's playing out uh, and the value conflicts that that is presenting in some societies. In terms of deprivation, you know, we, this isn't about objective levels, about wages and incomes, it's a sense of relative deprivation. And it's good to see relative deprivation coming back into the literature now, in that people are finally beginning to look at the, the role of perceptions of loss, not just actually how much we earn and levels of GDP, but you know, words like dignity, recognition, um, voice, uh, the perception of one's group being left behind relative to others, which actually helps us understand why often economically secure and quite affluent voters ended up voting for anti-establishment populist movements that yes, within the Brexit vote, there were free marketeers that said yes, out to the world, you know, economically liberal and so on. Uh, that's a perfectly valid strain within the Leave electorate and, and quite a significant one. But alongside those voters were also others that felt quite acutely who were working often full time on good incomes that they and their group were being left behind relative to others. And that fits into these debates that we've had around identity politics and the narratives and the language that's being used in our politics and the effects that that's having. Um, and then uh, looking at the way in which actually our uh, political systems are fundamentally changing. I mean, I, I would say to political scientists and social scientists that if you don't buy the arguments in our book, the first three drivers, and you want to debate that, that's fine. The one thing no political scientist could, could deny is the way in which our political systems now are de-aligning, that the share of voters who say, I feel loyal or supportive of the established mainstream parties has been gradually declining, and sometimes at quite dramatic levels. People were surprised by Sweden. I wasn't surprised by the election in Sweden because if you look at the, the complete collapse in party identification in that system, the, the percentage of voters who feel aligned to the mainstream has gone from around 60% in the 1960s to about 25, 27% today. Same in Germany, uh, share of independence at a record high in the US. In the UK too, we've now got surveys only last week showing that 70% of Brits say that the two main parties no longer represent how they feel about politics. Um, this, is, this is creating a far more fluid and volatile political marketplace. So you, you, could, you could say to me, well, I don't buy your argument that actually immigration, cultural change is key. I still think it's more about e economics. Or you could say, I, I, I don't think political systems are, you know, they are still representing these groups. We could have a debate about that. I won't agree with you. But the, the key point about de-alignment is whatever happens now over the next 10, 20, 30 years, we are going to have a far more volatile political marketplace. Um, it's going to be, you know, you can't just rebuild very strong levels of party identification because of one charismatic leader or one interesting electoral cycle. I think we're going to be entering into a period where you're going to see a lot of new parties coming up and possibly being replaced by even newer parties. And that's why I, my, my perhaps guess for where we're going in terms of our political future is actually more in line with where Central and Eastern Europe are, because there you have societies that don't have a rich tradition of strong multi-party politics, that don't have a rich tradition of strong party identification and loyalty, but look what's happening, high levels of volatility, new parties coming and going quite regularly. Now look at Western Europe, 
five star in Italy, Macron steps outside the political system, you know, the rise of, of UKIP, albeit constrained by first past the post system in Britain, the rise of the Sweden Democrats, the German Greens, the AFD on the national populist end, now Vox in Spain. Overall, you look at this from a sort of 30, 40 year perspective, and we know that overall rates of volatility have been increasing since the 70s. I don't see how you can conclude that actually we're just about to re-enter a period of stable mainstream party politics where the classic older parties are back to getting you know, 40, 45% of the vote. I just don't think that that's gonna happen. I think social democracy has been torn in two as uh, blue collar workers have gone into apathy or to national populism and middle-class professionals are going over to Greens or more radical left parties. That ideology just can't sort of come back and take 40, 45% of the vote. And, and on the right, centre-right conservative parties have clearly now calculated that whether, whether they're right or not, that it's in their interest now to drift over to the national populist space. So we will continue to see, uh, uh, Roger and I think, continued and high levels of volatility. I just want to challenge that um, thesis. Um, Thomas Piketty, as I'm sure you know, produced a paper last year in which he said that there had been this uh, realignment in French, British and American politics, uh, which had taken place over the past 50 years, in some case over the past 70 years, whereby it used to be the case in all three countries that um, educated middle-class voters would vote for right-of-centre parties and working-class non-graduates on low incomes would vote for left-of-centre parties. But over the past 50 or so years, we've seen a, 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 a switching of places. Um, and uh, uh, in Britain and America and France, um, it's now the case that middle-class graduates, particularly in large metropolitan areas, university towns, um, uh, generally vote for left-of-centre parties, and um, uh, uh, working-class um, uh, uh, non-graduates on low incomes, particularly in rural areas, but also in some urban areas, um, vote for right-of-centre parties. And we certainly seem to see that pattern in the last general election in the UK in 2017, um, and in Trump's electoral victory, we saw right-of-centre parties hoovering up these disaffected working-class voters. Why do you think that that's not going to be the future pattern? Why, is, why isn't Piketty essentially right? Why are these voters going to drift around, pinball around? Why aren't they, why aren't they eventually going to settle in right-of-centre parties like the Conservative Party, particularly if it <laughs> handles Brexit properly? Well. Look, Piketty might be right in, 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 in arguing that over the long term, we are going to gradually see this full realignment, that the rise of what he calls the Brahmin left has had serious consequences on, a, on the political behavior of voters. Um, you know, he might be right. And I think partly we're seeing some of that play out in party systems. Um, but I think it's gonna be a lot more volatile than simply you know, one, group, one group of voters drifting over to the right neatly and the other group of voters drifting across to the left neatly. I think um, it's going to be a lot more haphazard to take the 2017 general election in Britain. Yes, we saw the Conservative Party probably have one of its best elections among the working class uh, since Thatcher. But we also saw Corbyn's economic populism retain quite a strong degree of support from the working class. I mean, if you look actually at pro-leave 
seats in Labour areas, the Labour vote still went up by five points. Now, the Conservative vote went up two, often by about 10 or 11 points. But, but I don't think it's going to be as neat as that argument would have us believe. I think it will be gradual. I think it will depend incredibly uh, to a great degree on political agency and the supply side. You know, who are the leaders that are emerging to capitalise on this value conflict, on this new tension in politics? Who are the political parties? And also, by the way, what is the role of our public debate? Now, the public debate around you know, the direction of the left, around identity politics. Um, if you talk, for example, to my students, you know, this is the debate that people are having now. It's very much taking place away from mainstream media. It is taking place on YouTube and on these new forums and so on. You know, what effect is that going to have too in our, in our political change uh, going forward? What effect are other big external shocks going to, going to have if you believe that global growth now is gradually going to uh, decline over the next three or four years, in particular as China, uh, China's growth rates begin to, to fall and the Eurozone uh, it continues to age and, and isn't dyna dynamic enough, you know, those external economic shocks are going to have effects too, as is ongoing uh, ethnic, cultural and religious change, particularly in Europe. Um, I'm not disputing Piketty's thesis. I think probably in, in the very broad long term he's correct, but I think we're going to have a lot more volatility and churn, you know, on the way, right, on the way to that. Um, and it might be interesting, there is one variable that he might not be considering, one, one thing that he might not be considering, which is actually how does the left respond? So the assumption is very much that actually the left will continue to push a kind of more cosmopolitan kind of progressive sort of um, you know quite kind of um, at some time you know a, a view of politics that can be seen as being neglectful if not contemptuous of of white workers the left actually might change I mean look at Denmark look at Sweden look at the new rise up movement in Germany for the first time in a long time you've now actually got parties and movements on the left saying no hang on a second if we cling to this Brahmin left strategy uh, the future could be electoral loss, uh, big electoral losses, like social democrats are seeing in Austria, Italy, Czech Republic, Germany, you know, socialists in the mm -hmm. Netherlands and France. And they're now saying, well, actually, maybe it's in our interest to slow down on low-skilled, unskilled migration, begin to make the case for stronger national borders, national sovereignty. And I think it all comes down to this question that the left is going to increasingly face over the next 10, 20 years, which is a critical question, what are you willing to concede, right? What are you willing to concede? Because if you're not going to concede on any of these points about identity, about national uh, borders, uh, about uh, migration, if you're not going to concede on any of these and you're going to double down on the approach that's been pursued so far, uh, that's going to have electoral consequences. If, on the other hand, you are willing to make some concessions, as some left parties appear willing to do so, then perhaps actually Piketty may be overstating the case and you begin to see parties on the centre-left, on the radical left, beginning to perhaps offer something different. Hasn't national populism peaked in Europe and in the US too? So in Europe, populist parties won, I think, a median of just 13% of the votes in 2018 elections. The terrorism and immigration crises, which 
you identify in your book as having to con having contributed to the populist revolts of 2016. They've waned. Poland's Law and Justice Party fared badly in the mayoral elections last November. The Alternative for Germany Party uh, performed below expectations in the recent elections in Bavaria. Trump's approval ratings, though higher than Macron's, are still quite low. Doesn't this all suggest that national populism has actually peaked and is not just getting started, as you and Roger Eat will claim? I think it, it ultimately comes down to whether you're viewing our political world through a short-term lens, whether you're viewing it through a long-term lens. I mean, I've been looking at European politics and you know political change seriously since the late 90s. And again, you know, if you told me then that these were all the things that we were going to see in the space of only 18 years or so, I really wouldn't have believed you. Um, the question I often get asked, particularly by economists and folks in the city, is actually if you just take a macro view of this, are we nearer the end of a period of volatility and churn as populism reaches its peak, begins to subside, all the angry old white guys die basically and are replaced by these new generations that liberal progressives believe are the future? Um, or actually are we closer to the beginning of a period of volatility and change as these broad currents that we talk about in the book begin to sweep through, creating new levels of volatility and churn? My view, at least, is it, it, it's very much the latter, not the former, that, you know, even the things that you point to, you know, I mean, Trump's approval ratings are 40 odd percent, but among the key groups in his coalition, they're 75, 80 percent. Even if the Republicans lose in 2020, he's had a profound impact on, on, on national U.S. politics. He's also brought in a number of narratives and tackled a number of norms that I think will have a lasting impact on American society. Um, we, you know, he's also contributed to the polarization of the US in Europe, even when these parties don't do well. And one of the problems in the debate was people are obsessed with vote shares, right? They're obsessed with just what percentage of the vote do certain parties get. But, you know, we know that national populism is having a much broader policy impact, as we talk about in the last chapter of the book, that it is dragging party systems, contributing to party systems being drift, drifting over to the right, you know, that you're seeing the policy regime on issues like migration and border security toughening up. You saw basically the end of Schengen for a period of time as internal borders went up and Merkel and, 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 and the sort of liberal Europe realised actually this is not a sustainable position. You're seeing the British Conservative Party advocate positions that it probably wouldn't have done without the rise of the UK Independence Party. And you're seeing, um, you know, even in Sweden, for example, the formation of a very unstable coalition government that basically is only there because it refused to work with the populists, but now as a consequence, it's advocating more right-wing measures on, on, on certain policy areas. So it's also reversed its previous stance on the refugee issue too. So I think actually this, it, this, these movements are having quite a clear, tangible effect. Now, people might say, well, you're over-exaggerating, you're exaggerating the case, you're overstating um, their support. F from my perspective, the transformation of Italian politics, the transformation of German politics, Donald Trump in the White House, Britain voting for Brexit, you know, this is profound political change. And sometimes when you're living in it, you don't necessarily always grasp the significance of it. You know, and not to sound too sort of abstract, but the point we make in the book is, you know, we, we've had civilization as we'd recognize it for 5,000 years. We've had liberal democracy for only 100. And actually what we might end up coming, we might end up reflecting on in the future 
is actually what we're witnessing now is the start of a much more fundamental battle over what conception of democracy we're now going to continue to uh, adhere to. The liberal, traditional conception uh, that's dominated much of the post-war period or actually are we going to revert back to the, 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 the direct conception, giving more power mm. to, to uh, nation states, to localities, to ordinary citizens. And that tussle, it's not about people giving up on democracy. A lot of the books that have come out saying, oh, people are becoming fascist or they're going over, they support military dictatorships and all of this stuff. Actually, if you look at every major academic survey, support for democracy is still robust. And after multiple crises and a financial meltdown, I take those numbers that we see in the surveys, 85, 90% saying it. But people do want to now debate the conception of democracy that we're going to follow, liberal versus direct. So in the book, you and Eatwell um, are at pains to make this point, to distinguish national populism from historical far-right anti-democratic political movements. And you ridicule various liberal bedwetters for wildly exaggerating the threat that Brexit and Trump pose to democracy. But Surely national populist bodies in some parts of Europe, Poland and Hungary, for instance, are behaving in government um, much like authoritarian right-wing parties of the past. So constitutional courts are being neutered, the free press is under attack, intellectual freedom is being assaulted, immigrants are being demonised, particularly Muslims. Trump's also guilty of some of those sins. Some of those regimes are unquestionably authoritarian and those kinds of measures, particularly the treatment of universities and civil society should be called out and opposed. Um, I don't personally think that that is fascism. Uh, fascism, as we discuss in the book, was a truly revolutionary movement that wanted to overthrow the democratic state, wanted to overthrow virtually every aspect of liberal society, um, was, was obsessed with the creation of a, a new man that was completely subservient to the state um, and was advocating a political, almost a political religion of sorts that was wholly at odds with with democracy. I, I, I do not view Trump and even Orban uh, or law and justice as being fascist political movements. I had young Democrats um, come to London for a dinner recently and they were explaining how they were part of the resistance against a fascist who had hijacked American democracy and I found that language deeply troubling because whatever your personal view of Donald Trump he won the presidency through the electoral college um, he won it you know democratically I, I don't I don't I'm actually quite troubled by the direction of the debate in the US for a whole host of reasons and that's one of them we are not seeing generally uh, there are exceptions, Golden Dawn in Greece, for example, which is an openly neo-Nazi party, Casa Pound in Italy, which is neo-fascist. But these are very, very small political movements. We are not seeing uh, a return of historic fascism. And I think national populism is actually quite a distinct political tradition within our political systems that is different. It has, in many ways, I would argue, been tamed by the triumph of liberal democracy after the Cold War, um, that if you know, most of the parties that once upon a time were pretty openly dismissive of democracy and key elements of democratic society um, have been forced to actually change their ideological uh, 
belief system. You know, even parties like Le Pen now in France accepting that actually they have to work within the EU structures, or they have to work within democracy, and they can't. You know, that basically anything that comes close to being, you know, highly anti-democratic, being even openly hard Eurosceptic, is now not considered to be a vote winner. And Central and Eastern Europe is, you know, the, the misperception of Central and Eastern Europe from Western Europe is important. That the Central and East Europeans have a fundamentally different view of liberalism than most people in Western Europe. That they, you know, they their perception is very much that we were willing to encourage nationalism. We were willing to encourage nationalist mobilization for them to throw off communism but are now sort of stigmatizing those societies for being nationalist. And at the same time, they're looking at us as having made a series of catastrophic mistakes and saying that on the one hand, they're comfortable with economic liberalism, but they're not at all comfortable with social liberalism and everything that comes with that. And they are more highly instinctively conservative societies. Um, you know, and I think there's a big misconception of how people in Central and Eastern Europe view these issues and the role of national histories and traditions in how they've come to that viewpoint. Isn't there a slight tension between this analysis and the point you made earlier, which is one of the dangers of left-wing identity politics, of this rigid enforcement of dogmatic, politically correct speech codes, the demonization of anyone who dissents from the prevailing liberal orthodoxy about immigration and open borders as racist and xenophobic. The problem with all those things is they will drive people into the arms of these right-wing populist ethno-nationalist political figures like Tommy Robinson. But if actually ethno-nationalism isn't nearly as dangerous as liberals believe, then should we really be as concerned about political correctness 2.0, social justice warriors going nuts, and so forth? Should we just let them get on with it? Because even if it does drive you know, reasonable people into the arms of ethno-nationalist populist parties, there's no real, that's not a threat to democracy. That's probably okay. Well, no, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't, that's certainly not the argument or the view that that Roger and I would have in that you know these movements are obviously contributing to societies that um, the more successful national populists are I think the weaker the middle ground and um, you know the civil society actually becomes over the longer term um, the response of the left whether you call it your political correctness identity politics this narrative this strategy even, I think is, is deeply troubling precisely because it is pushing people away from the more responsible, uh, pluralistic uh, marketplace that sort of what Seymour Lipsick referred to as marketplace of ideas and pushing people more into a, into a brand of politics that is by its very nature tribal and quite divisive. And I don't personally want to see that brand of politics dominate societies and political systems, but I'm actually quite fearful that it will continue to attract growing support in response to a narrative, a strategy, a belief system that is now being quite aggressively pushed 
by parts of the media, by part by, by folks on, on on the left, as deeply corrosive that strips society down to um, a kind of a configuration that that forces people to identify and define themselves on along these lines. Um, we we just got so far down this line of focusing on on difference and uh, and and identity that we've completely lost sight of what's actually bringing us together and making us reasonable. Um, you know, responsible citizens. So I'm actually quite gloomy about where we're going and the polarization that's going to ensue. Because my earlier question about what are you willing to concede? Well, if you look at the Democrats in the US or you look at Remainers in the UK, the, the answer to that question currently is nothing. We're not going to concede anything. We're not going to reflect at all on what happened two years ago. And we're going to double down. We're actually going to become more concerned about these issues. You know, look at the survey evidence in the US. I mean, white university educated Democrats are now more concerned about racial discrimination in the US than African Americans. Uh, meanwhile in the UK you can see Remainers you know, again doubling down on you know the very sort of pro-immigration cosmopolitan kind of view that works wonders within their own political tribe but is quickly alienating others and pushing them into a more radical brand of politics. And I think it's I think it's always a, it's a tipping point, isn't it? Mm. I mean, it's how do you actually prop up a more a more inclusive, responsible, reasoned um, marketplace rather than encourage polarization? But I'd be keen on your views. Well, it just it just, just that that sounded slightly at odds with your earlier skepticism about um, the way in which um, knee jerk liberal. Um, analysts ascribe the rise of national populism to these various short-term causes they're actually to do it's all to do with these broad tectonic shifts that date back many decades and if if you're right then aren't you guilty of identifying a short-term cause the hard left turn that the Democrats and the Labour Party and other social democratic parties have taken in the past five years or so. But I, but I don't think it is a short-term cause. I think the view of how people on the left have responded to these longer-term currents, like how we've responded to issues like migration, how our political systems have evolved. I'm talking, you know, particularly since the '60s and '70s. I, you know, there's this view. There's this view of the debates that we're having about identity politics and. You know the progressive left that sort of assumes, you know, and also what's happening on university campuses. That kind of says, well, this just started in 2011, 2012, and this is suddenly a very mm. recent debate, a recent discussion. Actually, I think the some of the uh, approaches that people have felt very alienated uh, by and sort of pushed out of the liberal consensus began began many many years ago. Um, not just over the last five, mm. ten years. I mean, if you read uh, the work on you know the British politics and Euroscepticism and the way in which the sort of liberal consensus began to alienate um, large chunks of um, you know work, the working class, began years ago. But, would it, which suggest, but that sounds like a rebuttal to the kind of Mark Lilla warning that unless um, the left embraces kind of a much more universalist. Uh, form of liberalism, as it has done at earlier stages um, in its evolution, that it's going to continue to lose electoral contests. Um, but you seem to be saying that the factors that have contributed to the gradual disappearance 
of social democracy in Europe and America are these historical forces which are irresistible and there isn't you know the democrats could become overnight incredibly sensible and pragmatic and um uh, and it still wouldn't make much difference they're still going to lose not they're going to lose but it's not either or i think the the strategic choices that many of those parties and movements have made have exacerbated the tensions and the conflicts that we're pointing to that we know you know we've known i mean to go back to piketty and others and you know um Capitalism and Social Democracy, a great book in 1985, pointed to what was basically going to happen, that you would see middle-class graduates increasingly move away, drift away from more instinctively socially conservative workers. But of course, you know, that presented a strategic choice to people on the left, which is, well, you can try and carry people with you, or you can double down on a strategy or introduce a, a strategy, a narrative, a language that's going to make the situation even worse. And, you know, I think what's happened over the last five, ten years has exacerbated a lot of the deeper conflicts that have stemmed from from these currents that we're pointing to, that when people feel that they have no voice in political systems, when they're anxious over demographic change, when they feel that their group is being left behind relative to others, and they're already losing faith in mainstream politics, on top of those, you then you then basically say to those groups on the supply side, well, you're not as important as other groups, or what your ancestors did is partly why uh, you're a problematic uh, 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 group today. Um, you shouldn't be listened to actually as much as other groups uh, in society because you've essentially had your your time in the sun. And actually, mainstream parties are not particularly interested in having you in their winning coalitions. So I don't view it as either or. I think the strategic choices that people have made you know, have 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 gone alongside some of these. The, you know these deeper currents, and that—that's you know—that's what we see in the evidence. I mean, you know, people like Hans Peter Creasy at Florence have shown quite clearly that as you come through the 70s and 80s, volatility starts to increase, the crisis then hits, and the, but then it, th those events exacerbate those deeper currents. So you know, I'm not saying this is important and all of these mm -hmm. things do not matter, but we have these foundational currents that have been sweeping through our political systems that will continue to have quite profound effects, not necessarily meaning that Democrats will forever lose, because they won't, or, or Remainers will forever lose, because they won't. But we are entering into a more volatile, polarised and fragmented political arena, where the, the, str the strategies that actors choose now are could make quite a profound difference. And there are people on the left who are making a different strategic choice, saying actually they don't think identity politics is the way forward, and are looking at Lilla and you know, others who have made similar arguments as, as actually probably saying, well, this guy might have a point. Um, so I don't, I don't see them as mutually exclusive. Matthew, thank you very much for talking to Quillette. Thanks for having me. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.